If you have a if you have a Bible or you want to use one that's in front of you, uh, this morning we'll be in Luke chapter ten, and uh, before that we'll spend a couple of minutes in Psalm twenty seven. So Psalm twenty seven and Luke chapter ten this morning is where we're going to go. Welcome to our teaching series on slow. Uh, it's going to be a journey. It's going to take several weeks, especially when uh, the weather continues just to overwhelm us in that late evening, early mornings going into Sunday and causes us to cancel church. So welcome back. We started this journey the week before all of the snow fell and the ice and all of that mixture. So we've had two weeks off, but our our goal in this series or this conversation is to figure out how as a church we follow in the patient way of Jesus. And that when we look at his story all the way through, you see this significant attribute of patience from the creator, from the sustainer, from even this redeemer quality that is Jesus. Dylan mentioned it even as we were going into communion, they had this statement of for 2,000 years we've been doing this practice of communion or Eucharist. That's no short time. That causes even question in my own mind of why, why 2,000 years? Why since This story, 2,000 plus years ago of Jesus doing something, why are we still waiting? Why are we still around? Why why the here-ness? Why the pain? Why the suffering? Why all of that? Why does it have to continue? And I would love to tell you that I've searched that and I have the answer for you this morning in this sermon, but I I I don't have it. All I have is the continued part of my humanity that says, 2,000 plus years, wow. And the thousands before that. And the infinity before that, before any of this was spoken into existence, that existence of time, for me, only influences my respect or understanding of God's patience, because there's something beyond what I understand happening. But I also know on the, on the other side of that statement that there is a, a part of me that knows Moving too quickly gets me in trouble. That when I go too fast, it actually moves in opposition of God's patience and Jesus' pursuit of me, and it puts me in a place where I put expectations on Jesus, His kingdom, His church, myself, my family, and the community that I live in. It puts us into this conflict because I expect that this patient Jesus is going to meet my needs right now. And if he doesn't, I blame everyone else for it. I don't know if you can relate. I don't like to go slow. I don't like God's story to go slow. I like answers to come quickly. I like to know what he wants of me today. I like to be able to build a list of those expectations. And I like to check them off every day. And at the end of the day, if I have enough of the list checked off, I feel like I have created a day that God would be pleased in. And if I am not able to check off the things on my list during that day, I have a list of people whose fault it was that I was not able to accomplish my task that day. And I pray for them at the end of that day because God needs to enter into their life so I can get my stuff done. I don't know if you can relate or not. 
Or maybe you're like, I'm not a task person. I don't like to get things done, but I do like to be with people, and I like to experience life in community. And I find that a day has failed when either I'm really alone or the relationships that I find so important to me aren't working well. And my frustration comes from that. God, why didn't you fix this issue for that person so that we could be at peace? And we create another list. And it's the list of things that we need God to fix so that we can be at peace with the people that maybe we're in opposition to or maybe we disagree with or maybe we just don't like. Or maybe even more so, it's the ones that we love most. And we're wondering why God doesn't just fix that thing right now so that we can all be in harmony together and we get frustrated. We're upset. I don't like the story to go slow. I want it to go quickly. When I was 20 years old, I had just finished an internship at a church here in Ohio called Xenia First Church of Christ. There are so many things that that name says about that community. And I had wanted this internship to be a place where I could save money in order to buy a really big purchase at the end of the internship because I was dating a really beautiful girl and I didn't want to lose her so I thought I will both intern and work and I need to save money for the ring. It's time. So I stayed in houses of people who, were, uh, who attended the church. I didn't rent anything during the summer. I would sleep in all of these different houses. It was really interesting the type of places that you get to live when you're just like, hey, Host the intern. He'll sleep anywhere. It's a really poor statement for a church intern. And I ended up in all these houses, but there was one family who hosted me for most of the summer, and they gave me their, uh, at that time, like he was a nine-year-old boy, they gave me their nine-year-old son's bed in his room, so I had like all the themed out stuff, and it was nice. But they didn't believe in air conditioning in this house, so we went through the summer just sweating it out. Each week, my boss, the youth minister at the church, would have this this program that he called Entertain the Intern, and he would have people sign up just to have me over for meals. And so I ate whatever was put in front of me. I slept wherever I had to sleep because I was saving all of the money that I was making, which wasn't a lot from an internship, in order to get this ring. And the, the internship ends, I come back from that end of summer mission trip pack all my things up, get ready to go back to school, and as soon as I move back into the dorm, I make a trip down Glenway Avenue to Fagel Jewelers and walk in with a picture because I'd made sure to get the right ring, right? Like, ladies, you know, we've got to get the right one for you because that influences whether or not you say yes or no. And so I bring in the picture. The jeweler takes his time. He's like, I do not have anything here, but come back in two weeks and I'll have a ring for you. And I'm like, okay, adjusting my plan. I was planning on asking her within two weeks. I guess I'm not asking her within two weeks now. So he goes away. He finds the ring. He brings the ring back, and it's the exact one that I needed. So I purchased the ring. Uh, I weep for a couple of days because I don't like to spend money. And I get the ring, and then I go out, and I think the next step in the process is to get permission and My wife has a great relationship with her mom, so I wanted to take mom and dad out separately. So I go out to lunch with mom, and we have that perfect moment where we're eating and talking, and I ask for her permission to ask her daughter to marry me, and she weeps, and it's weird because we're in a restaurant, and people are like, why is he making his mom cry, right? Like, is this real weird? I'm like, no, it's not that. So we have this great conversation, and I'm feeling just over the moon. This is awesome. I've got it. Then I go talk to her dad. And it's really hard to get a moment with her dad alone because he's 
constantly doing things, and he and I just spending time by ourselves just hadn't really happened until that point. So he was finished mowing the yard, and I came up to him and said, do you have five minutes because I have a really important question to ask you? And you could tell he took the deep breath because his wife had already talked to him to start to prep him for this thing, and he was like, fine. That's fine. That's the word I got. Not sure, excited. It was fine. And so I gave him my best five-minute sermon that I could give him about how much I loved his daughter and how much I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And he, at the end of my five minutes, when I said, so may I marry your daughter, he looked at me and said, let me think about it. And then he fired up the blower and went to blow off his driveway with grass. Like, that was it. That was all I got. Let me think about it. And I got in my car and I drove away thinking, I don't know what that means. I don't know when I'm supposed to call back. Am I supposed to come back and ask again? I'm just living in limbo, unsure of whether or not I'm acceptable. And honestly, as I drove away, I'm thinking, what more do you want for your daughter? I'm a minister. Like, come on. 20 years later, having done ministry for a long time, I'm like, why would you ever want to marry a minister? I'm thinking if someone wants to marry my daughter, be like, let me think about it. But he gave me this let me think about it. And it slowed me down. And it stopped my plans. It stopped the story. And it caused me to start to think about whether or not all of the things I had planned were the right things. You see, I was thinking about a question, an engagement, a ring, a life with Sarah. I had many things on my mind. How do I do it? How do you ask when you're at a Bible college when everyone's asking everyone to marry them? How do you stand out? Like that's part of the whole thing is the engagement process needs to stand out at a Bible college. How do you do it? I mean, they have things like ring by spring kind of concepts there occasionally. And we were in that. I'm like, if I ask her, I got to stay away from my three best friends who are all asking their girlfriends right now too. We can't be on the same weekend because we have to have our moment. I have all these details, but my hopefully future father-in-law, he had one thing on his mind. Providing for his daughter. He wasn't thinking about the many things. He didn't ask to take a look at the ring that I picked out. He wasn't asking about how I was going to ask her. He wasn't asking all of these other questions. He was just simply thinking, okay, big question. Is this what my little girl needs? Let me think about it. The story of the slowness of God is found in moving from our distraction of the many to our focus on the one. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unveil some different principles on how, as a church and in a community and as individuals, how to live slowly. But before we learn how to live slowly, we have to ask the question, what am I living for? Because the pace of our lives is usually defined by the what we're trying to get to, not the how we do the thing that we're doing. I wanted to get to an engagement. My father-in-law wanted to take care of his daughter. The what was different for the two of us. 
And in Scripture, there's a, a recurring theme of this idea that conflicts the many versus the one. In Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, this psalm is attributed to David, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. This verse is bookended by a request for salvation, and then a conversation around trouble and distress and difficulty. So it's this idea of, you are the God of my salvation. You save me. You are the one. You are the one who can help me. All I want is you. All I want is to be in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty, and to inquire about your teachings, and to know your ways. Because in the time of trouble, when things aren't going well for me, when the mess comes back, when the frustration is there, when the enemies are there, I want to be centered on the one thing, not distracted by the many things. And so David writes this psalm saying, there's one thing, there's one thing that I seek. Later in a story, Jesus brings us back to this idea of a one thing in Luke chapter 10. Luke writes, as Jesus and his disciples, we'll start in verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I've been Martha a lot. Many, many times in my life have I been extremely excited to invite Jesus into a thing or an event or an activity or a moment or some type of epic, significant, historical, in my mind, activity that's about to happen. That I've wanted Jesus to be there. And I've gone to him. As this story says, Mary, Martha goes, hey, you're coming into this town. Come stay with me. I welcome him into my space and my environment. And when he gets there, he doesn't come alone. In this story, if you back up into chapter 10, the sequence would be that Jesus teaches his disciples about what going out looks like. We have a list of about 72 followers that go out. They've returned back to him. He's continuing to have a discussion with them. Someone raises their hand and says, who's my neighbor? Who should I really be talking to about you? He then teaches them this parable of the Good Samaritan that we have. And at the end of the Good Samaritan, he then walks into this town, most likely Bethany. That's how the, the Gospel of John illustrates that Mary and Martha live in this town of Bethany. Walks into this town of Bethany, more than likely with about a hundred people around him. And so when Martha comes to Jesus, she's not just coming to Jesus by himself and saying, hey, could I have you, singular human, over to my house for dinner? She's saying, come and dwell with me while you live in the town of Bethany. So all hundred of you, come over. And she invites he and his entourage into her house. And immediately she is overwhelmed by the amount of work that needs to be done when you welcome Jesus in. Is my house clean enough? 
Are there enough places for everyone to sit? What are we all going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to entertain everyone? How is everyone going to move through this place? Is everyone going to be able to see him? Is he going to love what he sees when he comes into my house? She invites him in and then she looks at how big of a mess her life is. And she starts to get to work. I am like Martha a lot. I heard about Jesus when I was about six years old and I invited him in and immediately I started to get to work on the mess that was inside there because I believed that once Jesus was present in my life, there was no room for any of the mess and so I started to clean it up. I had to clean up my language. I started to clean up the way I treated people. I started to clean up my relationship with my parents because all of these things that I heard in church sounded like things I needed to fix and that having Jesus in my life would then allow me to fix all of these broken things. Even at six years old, I was baptized because I taught my sister how to cuss. True story. Got off the school bus, taught her some words. She went into the house. She dropped him in front of mom. Mom looked at me like, what have you done to your sister? And I'm like, oh no. I just taught my sister to sin. I don't even know where I got that philosophy on life except that I believed it. And I'm like, I should be baptized right now. Like I should get, like I should be healed from this because I just damaged my sister. I began to follow Jesus because I wanted him to fix things. So Martha says, come, be with me. You just said, in all of these stories, like the Good Samaritan story, you just said that someone who follows you serves the people who are in need around. That's who their neighbor is. So you can be my neighbor. Come in and I will serve you. And all of them come in and she begins to serve and then she gets overwhelmed with the serving and she looks over and sees her sister Mary, not her friend Mary, not her cousin, not this other woman who had come in and was just happened to be a disciple, but her sister. Right? We always blame our sisters and brothers first. And she looks over and sees her sister sitting at the feet of Jesus. Whenever a writer would write the words, at the feet of Jesus, they would be inferring that there was a discipleship relationship happening here, that Jesus is rabbi, Mary is choosing in that moment to be follower, disciple. Very rare in this time for there to be a rabbi who had a woman taking the posture of disciple or follower sitting at the feet and listening as if she was one of the disciples too. Very rare. Amazing, beautiful, empowering, super cool. Unless you're the older sister who's got three bowls full of half-made soup, a jug of water trying to feed everyone, and six rolls of toilet paper trying to get it through the house. Because we weren't ready for this. And there are so many people And they're tearing the house apart. And we're moving things around. And she's looking around going, I'm too busy trying to play the role of what's expected of me for you to be an empowered woman right now. Like, get in the kitchen. Jesus, get her back in the kitchen. See, Martha's expectation of herself was so heavy that she began to place the responsibility on those around her. Mary didn't invite any Jesus to their house. 
It wasn't Mary who came in and said, Martha, Jesus is coming, will you help me? It was Martha who said, Jesus, come here. And then it didn't go the way she wanted it to go. And so she looked around and she was like, you, why are you sitting down? You shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be where you are right now. Come help me. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. Because she goes to Jesus and says, fix my problem. What's your problem? My sister. She won't help me. Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but there's only one thing that is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and distracted by many things. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, Martha, Martha, we can eat later. Martha, Martha, it's okay. I will make water here. He doesn't respond by fixing what she believed was broken. Instead, he responds by putting her attention to the many things that were actually keeping her from him. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and distracted by many things. It's not about this party. It's not about your sister. It's about the fact that you don't know who you are unless you are performing and doing and providing and you can't right now, so you're frustrated. You need many things. But your sister, your sister is focused on just one thing. The one thing. The one desire that she seeks. To gaze upon the beauty. To inquire in his temple. She's sitting at his feet. Soaking up all that David asked for in Psalm 27.4. But Martha is so distracted by proving her worth to Jesus. She's become anxious. And she doesn't have time for the one thing that matters. Being in His presence. We would be foolish to say that this passage, when partnered with other passages, like, In Matthew where Jesus says, blessed are you when you are a servant and you meet others' needs and you bring them a drink when they are thirsty or you feed them when they are hungry. That he is not saying, Martha, I don't care if people are hungry. He's not saying that. He's not saying, Martha, I don't care if people are thirsty. He's not saying that. He's saying, right now, in this moment, it's about us being present together, fully with me and when it's time to make food it'll get done easier if 100 of us make the food together when we need water we're all going to drink when 100 of us address the water issue it's not your burden to carry when we need To leave your house. It will go quicker. 
when 100 of us leave it better than we found it. It's not your burden. And it's not your sister's. Come sit. Be filled by the one thing. So that then we can go do all the things. So that we can go together. From city to city. From town to town. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. We'll go and do that, Martha. But right now. I need to know. Am I enough? This is what Jesus is asking her. Am I enough? The one thing that your sister has and the portion that will not be taken from her is the consistent presence of God that circumstances cannot distract us from. The difficult choices won't deter us from. And that the questions that we can't answer won't stop us from. Only one thing matters. To be present with Jesus. And so my question for myself, and then I took it to my team at Back to Back, I asked this, are you Mary or Martha? How do you live your weeks? And most of the time my answer is Martha. I wake up in the morning and I try to accomplish as much as I can on behalf of Jesus. Or I try to fix as much about myself as I need to fix on behalf of Jesus on a daily basis. One of the girls on our staff, one of the women on our staff, she said, I call her a girl because she's like a, like a daughter figure in my head because she's 20 years younger than me. Uh, but she popped up, she was like, I think, I think I'm Mary, I start my day reading scripture, and then I go about this stuff. What's interesting though is as on our team, she is one of the most driven, like box checks off type of person on the team. Like she wants to accomplish as much as possible during the day. And as she finished saying her statement about like, I think I'm married because I start my day sitting at Jesus, and then I go and knock the things out. And I'm like, that's interesting. I hadn't thought there are some days that I start my day like Mary. But then I live it out like Martha. And I think that's a distraction too. This passage isn't about do you have quiet time with Jesus as you start your day and go into a merry moment and then live Martha minutes. The question is, do you have merry minutes every day? Do we live in a place where one thing is the most important when we're on Twitter? Oh, that Twitter war this past week. That was a good one. <laughs> Never going to Washington, D.C. ever. Is there one thing that matters? In all the moments, in all the minutes, or do we continue to separate them? Because when the staff member said, I think I start like Mary, but I pretty much live like Martha, I was like, oh, yeah. I do that a lot too. How do you live your week? Performing for Jesus or in the presence of Jesus? Being in the presence of Jesus will slow us down. It was almost a week later and Sarah's mom 
calls me and says, has my husband called you back yet? And I say, no ma'am. And I've got like a date planned like this weekend for your daughter. And she's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like what? And she's like, he might have forgotten. <laughs> like I love that I have that much value. And so she calls him and says, did you respond to Chris? And he's like, oh, I did in here, but I never called him. He was like, I, I worked it out and I've come to my conclusion, but I just forgot that I didn't tell him. And so he calls me and he says, this is why I needed time to think. You don't have any money. True. You don't know where you're going to work. True. You're really young. True. But you really love my daughter, don't you? Very, very true. He's like, well, are you sure that the two of you can overcome all that other stuff with just this one thing? And my response was, I'm banking on it. He's like, okay, then you can ask her. He needed to know that my one thing and his one thing are the same thing. And that's really what Jesus wants from us. That's what he wanted from Martha. That's what he wanted from Mary. He wants to know that his church is making his one thing their one thing so that his people, his broken children, his hurting children, his wounded, his empty, his lonely, his misunderstood, his displaced, his broken, his unempowered can sit at his feet in this place too because our one thing is his one thing. And our answer is not to leave today and go perform on his behalf. It's to leave this room and to go in his presence to lunch, to dinner, to our houses, to work, to the playgrounds with our kids, and to Twitter. In his presence. Is our one thing his one thing? That's going to slow us down. And it's going to be a beautiful slowness as we move forward. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for the portion of Mary. Pray that we would find that one thing and that it would not be taken from us. And for those of us in this room that are overwhelmed with anxiety and distraction, I pray that you would just speak a spirit of peace over us this morning. Give us the truth and the grace to know that you are inviting us to be with you more than to perform for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.